Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 134 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the great television talk show hosts of all time, a legend of late night, Dick Cavett. The Nebraska-born 80-year-old first burst onto the scene nearly a half century ago. After graduating from Yale University, he moved to New York to pursue acting, but ultimately found work as a writer for The Tonight Show, initially under Jack Parr, then for a series of guest hosts, and ultimately for Parr's permanent successor, fellow Nebraskan Johnny Carson. After a few years, Cavett's wit and wisdom led him to try stand-up comedy, which in turn led to him being booked as a guest on various talk shows, one of which caught the eye of ABC, which recruited him to host his own talk show. A daytime program called This Morning, and later renamed Dick, eventually led to a move to primetime and then to the late-night slot that had been vacated by the Joey Bishop show. And it was there that Cavett shined for five years, spanning the end of 1969 through the beginning of 1975. Other incarnations of The Dick Cavett Show later emerged on CBS, PBS, USA, CNBC, and TCM, but it is the ABC years with which Cavett remains most closely associated, as it was during them that he proved that a show airing at 11.30pm need not include just a monologue and gimmicks, but could also feature smart and engaging conversation with people from all walks of life, from Groucho Marx and Katherine Hepburn, to Muhammad Ali and Satchel Paige, to, perhaps most infamously, Norman Mailer, and Gore Vidal. Cavett has been off the air for many years now, but he remains as sharp and funny as ever, as I found out when we sat down at the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel during the TCM Film Festival, where he was an honored guest, participating in a conversation about his life and career, and then signing his latest book, Brief Encounters, Conversations, Magic Moments, and Assorted Hijinks. Over the course of our conversation, Cavett and I discussed a wide range of topics. Among them, how a struggling actor-slash-Time Magazine copyboy talked his way into a job with Jack Parr. Why, once he got his own show, he wasn't comfortable being labeled an intellectual, as he so often was. Why he didn't mind winning the enmity of Richard Nixon, who is heard saying of Cavett on the Watergate tapes, quote, is there a way we can screw him, close quote. Why he feels ABC eventually canceled his show and how he handled the news. Which of today's late-night hosts he likes the most and sees the most of himself in? Why his outspokenness about his battle with depression is ultimately the public contribution of which he's proudest? And much more. So, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Mr. Cabot, thank you so much for doing this. Okay. It's been a lot of fun watching you over the years. And actually, you were in my hometown of Woodbridge, Connecticut a few years ago, promoting talk show, your book, and I happened to be visiting home, so I got to see you there, which was a treat, but... I remember you. You were wearing a bikini. (laughs) 
a white parasol. <laughs> and army shoes. Yes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> we always begin on this podcast with just the basics. So where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a little I think for- you can find all of that in Wikipedia, yes. <laughs> but they got it wrong. So I'll That's tell right. You. That's right. I was born either in Kearney or Hastings, Nebraska. So you can choose whichever pleases you. Okay. Gibbon, Nebraska, as you right. probably already would have assumed, had no hospital. So had to go to big cities. And what did your folks do for a living? They taught high school. Both of them. And they were English teachers and that sort of thing. So how did performing of one sort or another, and I've heard there were a lot of sorts from summer stock to gymnastics, how did that first sort of enter your life? Not everybody gravitates towards doing things in front of other people. I think I was in a little mini pageant in fifth grade in which we had fake antique wigs and I had to say the government will consist of the legislative, the executive, and the judicial. I hope I got the right Yes, yes. And some of our senators couldn't do that. <laughs> and uh, that was it. And then I, when I was in junior high, equity actors stunned to get off a train in Nebraska did a summer of stock in Lincoln, Nebraska, in an old barn like the classic uh, summer stock theater. Uh, and uh, they needed a young man. They called the high school, my junior high principal and said, do you have a kid in your drama class? We hear you have a drama class. Do you have a kid who can do an English accent? And I put my hand up, having never tried. <laughs> and that showed the way the wind was blowing, that I pushed myself into that part. I got to be the Winslow boy <laughs> with professional actors, some of whom I had seen on TV. So you, you caught so the bug. One week of the Winslow boy and I and a couple other plays that summer. And then I started doing a magic act. Uh, Johnny Carson was not really competition because I was just beginning, mm-hmm. and he had already been doing one from Omaha. And I met him in Lincoln at a church basement where the future star of The Tonight Show probably got well over $25 (laughs) to do an hour of magic in a church basement. We knew about him because he had an Omaha radio show. We in Lincoln knew. And two little friends of mine and I I said, let's go backstage before the show starts. A bad rule. A rule not to break. And there he was setting up, and he gave us a filthy look because a magician does not want you to see the dove going into his jacket pocket. (laughs) And I said, we're magicians, Mr. Carson. I was witty even then. (laughs) Oh, okay, fellas. And he had us over, and he showed us card fans. He let us look at his stuff on the table he was setting up. And the greatest part of it was we then sat in the audience, of course. He did about an hour of magic. In the middle of it, he said, you have some magicians here in Lincoln. And he introduced me and Tom Keene and Alan Spieler. <laughs> well, we thought we were on the Ed Sullivan show. Right. You know, we were introduced from the audience. <laughs> we had just gotten television right. not long before right. that. So. And how old were you th- at that point? I would say, I think we were probably in eighth grade. Yeah. Yeah, we got the coaxial cable finally got to our part of the country. Just in time to see who this Milton Burrell we've right. been hearing about was. Just in time for the f- fabulous, one of the three greatest events in the history of television, Watergate being the only one really comparable in my mind, to the Army McCarthy <laughs> hearings. Yeah. My future nemesis, Richard Milhouse Nixon, right. <laughs> the great unindicted co-conspirator, and the serpent-like Roy Cohn, <laughs> A tutor of Trump's. 
he he was a scary person. He was a bit apparently a genius lawyer. He was hired by many showbiz people. He's worth looking up for those oh, yeah. who don't know the name Roy Cohn. Evil beyond belief. Years later, I turned at a cocktail party and I was facing him uncomfortably closer than I am to you. <laughs> and looking in that face, I thought, this face contains at least five of the seven deadly sins rolled into one. <laughs> that was Roy. Yeah. And I never met McCarthy, but I feel I have from Joe, from Aaron Gorbidal's great <laughs> yes. comments about him. Right. He said, uh, for those who don't know, he was a senator and a tail gunner and a drunk with an eye for the boys. <laughs> That's well, how he defined him on a show of mine. There you go. Got some negative mail on that. I imagine. Still. Well, <laughs> you must have been a, a good student as well as a good magician because you... I know, got into Yale, headed east. Was that a, a major transition for a kid from the from the Corn Belt? To... Well, you try and guess. <laughs> yeah, well, so how did you adapt? I couldn't believe it. A school teacher friend of my parents suddenly said, when I was in next to last year in high school, Dick should apply to Yale. And I thought, what are you talking about? I live in Lincoln, Nebraska, and the university's here, and all my friends go there. But I did apply, and by some miracle... The letter arrived in the summer that said Yale, and I thought, well, I know what that'll say. We are sorry to have to inform. <laughs> but on the contrary, I was in the freshman class next year. And when yeah. you were there, you got involved with theater and radio, right? I, I did, yeah. I uh, took a train in the middle of the night to Chicago, five-hour layover, the rest of the way to New York. My stepmother, who knew New York, she was the first... U.S. Marine captain in the women Marines. Wow. She knew a lot of stuff. Yeah. And she said, when you get off the train in New York, you don't need to even go up on the street. Walk to the right. I'll draw this map. You'll come up in the lobby of the Roosevelt Hotel. I did. <laughs> lay in a bed and thought, New York. New York is outside. And I'll be in it tomorrow morning right. when I, right. I walk. Yeah. Well, my freshman year, I didn't do any kind of theater or anything like it owing to a perhaps understandable fear of flunking out. All these guys went to fancy schools. <laughs> and then, of course, they had what's called regional distribution, which included me. They threw a dartboard at Nebraska or something, <laughs> and one at Iowa, you know, and got some people from other places. Right. This won't work verbally, but only in print. But A, I didn't know what a prep school was when mm -hmm. I got there, and some kid with that sort of revolting Connecticut accent that Jonathan Winters imitated so beautifully, I would say, oh, I must ask you, why did you, um, why did you prep? When it took a second, and I realized, and I said, I didn't prep, I hide, H-I-G-H-E-D, <laughs> and I don't think he understood that. But he went on to He was okay. Nothing. Yeah. So when you were coming out of Yale, what did you imagine? You oh, you were... got me through so fast. Well, no, I thought you maybe, I thought you were, I thought well, you were well, perhaps. It uh... went fast. Yeah, yeah. I, honest to God, thought this is probably the best four years of my life. I don't want it to ever, ever end. And I looked up at the uh, famous Harkness Gothic yeah. Tower on the campus and the bells began to ring. And I thought, two more years and I'm... <laughs> And that dreadful, chilling phrase, out into life. Right, right. I don't know what you've been in before you get in life. No, yeah, but. not the real world, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But at that point in, in time, what were you imagining your future was going to entail? Obviously, I can't 
yeah, assume that's that, the, yeah. As obviously people are taught to say who are coached, or if you notice this on book, they're not familiar with the media, always say to the host at some point, that's an excellent question. <laughs> it's there every time. Right, you know? it's good Anyway, in true. this case, it's true. Uh, so it makes it easy to say, <laughs> yeah. That, uh, the fact is, I didn't know. I had a dim vision of the future being in show business, because that's all I cared mm-hmm. about. My dad had wanted me to check dental school and law (laughs) and things when I was still back in Nebraska before we knew I'd be going east. Uh, But I didn't give a damn about any of those things. I just knew I wanted to be in show business. And I could, I used to think, what will I end up though? Will I entertain troops like Bob Hope? (laughs) Will I be a singer or something? Anyway, I was in summer theater right up to the summer after senior year. And... At the end of that summer, Williamstown, summer, wonderful Williamstown Summer Theater, somebody said, well, Dick, I guess you'll be uh, starting to look for an apartment in New York. And I thought, oh, I guess that's what you do. <laughs> I found a wretched little roach-infested apartment on West 76th. <laughs> right. And virtually failed to starve only because I could type, so <laughs> Office Temporaries has me on their pay list right. somewhere in the... <laughs> Uh, and I got a couple of jobs. I got on Sergeant Bilko as an extra. I made a Signal Corps movie as a wounded German prisoner because I, <laughs> you couldn't fail to learn to speak German from my Yale German intensive German class, which met. Can you match this? Nine times a week. Oh, that's pretty. Pretty obviously rough. twice certain days. Yeah, I cut it something like thirty-eight times the first term. <laughs> Because, and this is not bragging, it's just nature. I'm so good at language <laughs> that I had no trouble learning German. Right. And I remember Frau Müller at the end of one period of time said, Herr Kavit, you know, it is a shame you are missing so many of the, of the class because you could be one of the best. <laughs> and I said, well, aren't, aren't I one of the best? I got a 96. And she and looked was... I had gotten a 96 right. of the Anyway, uh, so uh, that speaking German got me a job. Yeah. Somewhere, yeah, oh yes, in the book Cavett, Harkat Brace Jovanovich, 1970-whatever. Mm-hmm. Your research probably 74, I remember. Why, God, I'm impressed with you. I was when you came in. Well, so thank, you. thank you, thank you, thank <laughs> you. I thought, there's a professional. No, but I, I, there's a picture of me in there as this wounded German soldier, and I really look like one. I've obviously had a bad wound in this side of a, my not not nazi jacket that's an error because not all soldiers were party mm-hmm, members mm-hmm. Uh, anyway and i opened my jacket uh, and they made this ghastly looking wound and it scares me every time i see it <laughs> and then it was pretty bleak for a while and eventually my notorious ballsy taking a monologue to jack Parr, yes, handing let's... it to him and getting a job was happened well let's let's if we can uh, I know you maybe have had to talk about this more times than you'd like but I've got to just ask because it is an amazing story you're you basically spent a lot of time that first year in New York watching TV because there wasn't a lot else going right. on for you right and, and late night was no choice it was either a bad old movie or Jack Parr right one and, tonight sh- one late night show and so Parr. you'd enjoyed watching him mm. and then where did you was it in the newspaper or somewhere you'd seen him vent about the fact that he was struggling with his monologue you've got it right I um, think of the coincidences that are about to come out copy boy at times schlepping papers up and down the time life halls 
I go back to the copy boy's desk, and someone has left a New York Journal American, it's died since, <laughs> open to the very page that had a column by Marie Torre, a sort of legendary columnist who actually went to jail to refuse, refusing to reveal a source. Anyway, this had nothing to do with that, but it, there, were the bold, there were the bold names, and my eye fell upon Jack Parr, because I was neurotically fascinated with Jack Parr and his show. And it said Jack worries about his monologue more than anything in his day or in his life, it seems, something like that. Yeah. I don't remember the decision, but I went home, got out my royal portable from Yale, <laughs> battered a bit, and wrote a Jack Parr monologue, as I thought it would sound, from having seen him a lot. Right. A couple of pages, three pages, maybe 30 items. Went to the RCA building, 6th Avenue elevators. I knew where they were because I'd sneaked into shows <laughs> there. No security in those days, or, or you would be foolishly talking to an empty chair <laughs> right now because everything came from what happened next. Knew the floor Jack's office was on. I thought, how do I, do I knock on it? And suddenly here he came. He claims from the men's room. He claims I <laughs> cornered him in the men's room. He always made things right, a better story. Right. But he was in the corridor. And here's a tip, boys and girls, for moments like this in your life. Get something visual that will catch the attention of the person. I got a Time magazine envelope <laughs> with Time clearly right. on it, and it caught Jack's eye. He happened to be feuding with Time at the time, so it was more intense mm -hmm. than him. So he looked at me warily, and I said, oh, it's nothing like that, Mr. Parr. I know about your problem at the time, but I just uh, I want to be a writer, and I wrote you this stuff, gave it to him, took it in his office, and I thought, stay. <laughs> so I sat in the audience. Right. I'd sneaked in before. I knew how to sneak into the audience. <laughs> Jack came out, and by God, he took out the papers that he had in his inside jacket pocket, and I knew exactly what he was going to say. I was out in the hall just now, and this kid, I don't know who he was, he, he handed me this page of joke. He writes better than my writers. I don't know what's wrong with my writers. Anyway, this kid. But no, it was not that. It was a routine about traffic in New York that was written for him by somebody. And I slunk down in my chair. Then he went into the audience with a hand mic, as he often did, and that was the day that the phrase pirate ship was on all the tabloids. It was the day of the first big hijacking at sea by alleged pirates. Mm -hmm. And a woman said, what about that pirate ship, Jack? And Jack said, imagine the consternation of the passengers hearing a voice come over saying, attention please, this is your pirate speaking. <laughs> Huge laugh. I sat up in my right. chair. He did another one, and another one worked them in ingeniously. And so naturally, I managed to get in the same elevator with him leaving, and he said, you want to write, kid? And it all came from there. And and you were immediately hired as talent coordinator? or what, That's what I had read, but... You were devilishly accurate. But what did that mean? Well, Jack said, uh, we're going to hire you, kid, but we're going to make you a booker. And I wasn't sure I knew the term booker. Yeah, yeah. It was the person who calls James Cagney, if he's the guest on the show in those days, and says, anything you want to talk about, or right. make some notes for the star, is encouraged to have ideas, who to have on the show. So I was a booker for a while. And they came to this city of, yeah. of the Angels for two weeks with the show, 
And Jack said, those two weeks are your official tryout. And I, in those two weeks, I wrote really well for some reason. But basically, as a result of that, you were made a full writer. I was a made man from then <laughs> as, as a writer. Oh, I remember one. It was the time they were still testing bombs in those days. <clears throat> and the cliche was, if something didn't work or something failed in life or something... It's those bombs they're testing. That's what's doing it. If you had sinus trouble, right. it was the bombs. And the headline was, Russia tests bombs equal to 20,000 tons of TNT. So I wrote what now seems like the obvious punchline for Jack. How do we know what they set off wasn't 20,000 tons of TNT? Well, this got an enormous, <laughs> inordinate laugh. Right, right. And uh, I guess it, it helped me. <laughs> One of the things that was interesting, though, was that you stayed on as a writer there beyond Jack Parr when it was taken over. I guess between him and Carson, there were a lot of guest hosts, including Groucho and Soupy Sales and Mort Saul and Merv Griffin. And so I just wondered, as a writer... It must have been an interesting challenge to have to write for all these different voices. Well, it was it was wonderful in its way, because to be successful at that kind of writing for various people, or even one famous one, as Bob Hope said, writer Mort Lockman told me once, you got to be able to turn them on in your head. If you have a joke for Jack Benny, but you don't know how Jack Benny sounds, uh, young people, you may have to Google some of these <laughs> names. And I could hear Jack. I could, couldn't fail, because I'd watched him so much, right. to write it the way he would say it. So that helps you a great deal. And that summer was stock company for The Tonight Show, in a way. Everybody in the business tried to host The Tonight Show, and several succeeded. <laughs> Groucho had actually become sort of a, a mentor to you, right? How did that happen? By the time he hosted the show as an interim guy, yeah. you'd already I already known knew him. him. Yeah, you know, that struck me recently as odd. I thought, wait a minute, how did... I met Groucho on the day of the funeral of the man who was his god, the great George S. Kaufman. Mm -hmm. Some folks will remember him as the witty panelist on a show called <laughs> This Is Show Business. Mm -hmm. Great strange mane of hair, genius playwright. He and Moss Hart wrote all those, you know, yeah. Vanner came to dinner and yeah. can't take it with you. But also a show doctor. He could f fix shows that were failing out of town and a great, great wit. Lest I forget, his daughter is still with us, Ann Kaufman, and I talked to her once, I said, did, did your dad give you any advice about life? Mm -hmm. And she said, he did, yes. His advice was, sample everything in life except incest and folk dancing. <laughs> the folk dancing part gets the laugh Yeah, right, me. right, right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so yeah, so I met Groucho. I, I was there and I looked across this little room, it was full of everyone you, you were ever, there, why? It was at the Frankie Campbell Funeral Home in New York. But why were you there? Were you... Well, this obit had been in the paper the day before, and I talked to Woody Allen. We were lamented the death of George Kaufman, right. who was hero of Woody's, of course. Yeah. Everybody I'd ever seen caricatured by Hirschfeld in books about the theater was at Kaufman's funeral. And, and at Kaufman's funeral, I looked across a, a little room we were in for the overflow, and there was Groucho. 
Marx. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I had to take a breath you, there. You can, you can say it on this one. Oh, I had a Groucho fucking yeah. Marx, of course. <laughs> uh, uh, thank you, lady. Yes. Uh, and he had a cigar, not lit or lighted, of course. And I just thought, a new era in my life has begun, <laughs> I hope. Right. Even if it ends five minutes from now when this funeral ends, after Moss Hart had taken out the eulogy from his pocket, stopped listened for a second and said, I just heard George in the casket back there saying, it needs cutting. <laughs> anyway, then he read the eulogy. As I left, a woman's voice said, hello, Groucho, I'm Edna Ferber. And I thought, we aren't in Nebraska anymore, right. Toto or whatever the line is. <laughs> right. And then you <laughs> Went to the corner, I accosted Groucho with a brilliant line. I said, I'm a big fan, Groucho. And he said, if it gets any hotter, I could use a big fan. And <laughs> that was the beginning of our relationship. Right. He did my show 10 times, That's maybe. They're great episodes I've, I've watched. Yeah. That's beauty of YouTube. For those of us who weren't around to see them when they first aired, a lot of them and your DVD collections. I've, it's, I've yeah, seen. Groucho's, of course. Yeah. And, actually, Groucho's in two of the collections. I think yeah. probably Hollywood Greats and also the comedy. Yeah. One that has Benny Hope and all those right. folks that young people don't know the names of today, <laughs> but should. But so you, you are writing through these interim hosts. Eventually, you're... Old friend Carson becomes the host. You write a little bit for him. And then, as I understand it, be between that and you getting your own first shot at a show, that shot at your own show really came about in part because you were making guest appearances yourself, right? Yeah, I was a guest on Merv Griffin because... But how does that I, even happen? I, Writers aren't often asked to... Well, because I had started doing an act. Okay, uh, stand up. The legendary Jack Rollins said, we're going to take you along the way we did Woody. Uh, he hated becoming a performer, but we, uh, he would throw up backstage before, literally before really? he just was so... I knew I'd be good at it, I thought, <laughs> because I'd been a magician, kid, and doing shows for $30 right. and stuff in Lincoln. I saved up $700 in <laughs> high school and lent it to my parents to buy a new car. Wow, wow. I told Teller that I got $30 as a kid, and he said it took me 10 years to get to $30. <laughs> you all know Teller, of yes. course. Those guest appearances that you were now being invited to make on, on late-night shows mm -hmm. convinced people that you could hold your own as a, as a host? That's what I thought up until a couple of years ago when somebody said, don't you remember... Out here in California, you made a pilot for ABC called The Star and the Story. And they got the great Van Johnson, and we taped five 30-minute sequel shows of his life and career. They hated this show. <laughs> they didn't hate John, Van Johnson. You couldn't. Right. They just thought it was a dumb, obvious idea. So I don't know what. But they sort of liked the kid who hosted it. And I was the kid, fortunately. So from that, somebody said, you know, we've been thinking of trying a talk show ourselves. And this is at ABC. At ABC. Which was in the in third place for pretty much everything for a long time, right? They'd come a in later. ABC at that time was about eighth out of three <laughs> networks. So <laughs> I used to say it's as simple as ABC. And right. that, and <laughs> but, but ABC, of course, as we know, came to life. And right. they got Elton Rule and other... Fine people came and took it over and made it work. But it was really in the dumpster. 
if not the dumper. They're not the same thing, <laughs> are they? Anyway, uh, Nixon used to say the dumper, right. and that was the cleanest word right. in his foul, <laughs> vile mouth. That he lo- he was the extremely filthiest. Uh, right. There's no comedian ever as as vile as Richard Nixon's speech, <laughs> as we know from the tapes. Right. On which you made theory, a cameo. You know about this. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's frightening. There's one on, uh, I think still on YouTube now, that contains the line, Nixon in the Oval Office talking to his, this is an Elizabethan term, his lickspittle, H.R. Haldeman, <laughs> Cavett. There must be some way we can screw him. If you want to see that, it's on YouTube. I love it. And, it's and, about... And didn't they say, we're trying, right? Yeah. He, he actually succeeded in a way. Um, a woman on my staff in a chance meeting said, you know, I ran into Arlene. Or, in other words, and it turns out we were both audited the same year. And then they found somebody else was. So the or Yorba Linda Wonder had executed <laughs> one of his hobbies, which yeah. was punishing people with the IRS illegally. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, President, uh, on my wonderful show you should really see called Dick Cavett's Watergate, it was on PBS, you will see Nixon, there's a shot of a lot of little handwritten things that he said in various places, and the second time I saw it, I thought, oh, there's one I missed. It is, is Cavett a Jew? This show got great reviews, and one of the reviewers called me and said, seeing that show, do you feel sorry for Mr. Nixon in any way? And I said, yeah, the poor man died without knowing. The answer to his question is, Kevin, a Jew? <laughs> his anti-Semitism and his obscenity, right. which I think are connected in a bizarre psychological right. way with his obsession with manhood, yeah, yeah. were one of his many faults. But on that show, we have Carl Bernstein now. Back at Watergate, I had Woodward and Bernstein on yeah. as young kids, yeah, yeah, yeah. having triumphed. And, gotten the whole ball right and uh, it's just strange even though you know it's true to hear Carl say an administration with two criminals at the top yeah. Richard Nixon and Spiro Agnew yeah amazing well we Agnew might was, we might have a, rep- a reprise of that so something <laughs> like that could happen if uh, Agnew was my dullest guest mm-hmm. unfunny beyond belief and they told me he would be amusing right and I do anagrams in my head it's a strange curse uh, <laughs> And it was two weeks after Agnew had escaped my clutches right. that I thought Spiro Agnew rearranged spells grow a penis. <laughs> Dorvey Dell said, it would it'd also be grow a spine, wouldn't it? But yours is better. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's come back to you because you are, so your ABC is impressed by you. They, they initially hired you for a morning show where you yeah. really impressed a lot of people. Then they suggest moving it after how long to just a few months, right? Moving it to the, to late night. You know, I would have to check that. I thought I, the first, the morning show was greatly popular with those who happened to find it by right. accident because <laughs> the network did a, is wretched a word I can use here, you job can. of promoting it. Yes. Uh, and people would write in and say, we're calling friends because why doesn't your network tell people this show is on it? And then when they heard it was going to be canceled, I got all this mail about that. But the, it's like uh, maybe in a bad script. I was third row at a theater in London waiting for the curtain to go up, and a woman tapped me and said, you're replacing Joey Bishop. And <laughs> this I is when she, they're making it the night, the late night show. Yeah, this was uh, after the daytime show had gone off, and I said, I, well, I thought she said, are you replacing Joey Bishop? 
And I laughed it off. And she said, no, no, it's in the paper. I didn't know it. They you had not me. known? <laughs> so I replaced Joey as the right. ABC's late man. Were, did you, when you found out that that had been confirmed, did you have any apprehension knowing that the audience that watched you at 1030 is probably quite different from the audience that was going to watch you at 1130 at night. Well, that's a good point because I did have a lot of housewives, some of whom couldn't stay up until 1130. <laughs> and home recording was rare of a show. Some people recorded it on audio tape and listen real, real and right, listen to it. But uh, eventually the audience began to find out about it and show up, and uh, the network had done its usual splendid promotion job. And and in this case, they got a lot of it right. So the amazing thing to me also is that aside from some of these beer commercials that you'd done with Mel Brooks, you had not ever really interviewed anybody yourself prior to having your own show, right? That's right. No, it it isn't a thing that shows up in your life, in the normal life very often. But I'd hung around talk shows with Jack and Johnny. I was the only writer who stayed for the taping and then watched it again at night, Mm -hmm, usually. mm -hmm. So I absorbed a lot. And just before I began, a call from my old boss, Jack Parr, saying, kid, when you do this show, don't do interviews. And I thought, well, what, you know, sing, read poetry? Right. (laughs) He said, no, no, interviews, that's... Q&A and what's your favorite this right. and what do you think's the greatest this and David Frost blinking with jet lag or reading his clipboard and th- that's all crap. Make it a conversation. And those magic words make a lot of difference. And that really was what you did, I think, better than, better than anybody because it, people were not... I know you did not like the label that you started to get about being an intellectual. Why was that? Because these well, were very a, smart conversations. It's a bit of an albatross. Young folks won't have to look up albatross. Fully. <laughs> albatross is almost an anagram for sort of blah. But anyway, <laughs> I'll work on it later. Alec Guinness is genuine class, by the way. That's uh, the one that scared me yeah, right, right. when that popped in my head. But anyway, <laughs> that can be deadly because, uh, hey, honey, want to watch an intellectual or <laughs> jackpot bowling? You know, and, I, right. and, and I've said that foolishly, I thought you were supposed to read the guest books. So I would plow through 400-page <laughs> books and finally fall asleep right. and then spend eight minutes on the show with the author uh, out of four guests. But, yeah, as you can guess from certain political results, not yeah, no. necessarily <laughs> Popular, right? the word for the populace. So on your show, were you totally being yourself or were you adapting a persona in a way? I think that... Well, that really is the good question because it ties in with my realizing after a while when someone would say who was on just now that you taped with and I couldn't remember <laughs> that in that hour of going home you become yourself again. You, you're not really yourself on mm-hmm. television. Mm-hmm. You look like, you sound like, and you use things that are in yourself. But there's a bit of a mask that you take off when you go home. You have to shed that show. Johnny thought he was losing his mind one night, and I was a guest on his show, and he said, Richard, you ever, uh, it was during a commercial break, obviously, did you ever uh, forget who you had on? (laughs) And I said, oh, yeah, there's so many. No, no, that night. He had gone home. Doorman had said, so who was on tonight, Mr. Carson? Apparently an Irish doorman. Yes, yes. And I said, well, I said, well, you know, we always have four guests. We had, Jesus, we had... 
Gee. He said, 20 minutes before I could think of J.P. Morgan, the right. singer. Right. And he couldn't come up with any of the other guests right. for another half hour. <laughs> and that's normal. And to make him feel better, I said, well, because I liked him so much. Mm -hmm. And I said, uh, he was really kind of wiping the for his forehead psychologically. <laughs> and he was drinking a good bit at that point. And as I've tastelessly said, had a wife on the ledge. And <laughs> a lot of pressure on Johnny. Lots of pressure on Johnny. And I said, I, I came home one night after a one-person show. <laughs> You'll see why I stayed it that way. How'd it go? Fine. Who was it? Uh, um, ah! Uh, oh, God, they sat right there. Um, an obscure name, you'll admit. Lucille Ball. <laughs> Wiped from my mind. Wow, wow. So Johnny felt better. <laughs> <laughs> well, you actually had something happen on your late night show that I don't think has ever happened on any other, which is that somebody actually oh, no. died, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> this is early well, in the run. Fairly so. Whom would the gods, with their sense of humor, have croak on a talk show... <laughs> With an audience and a band and lights and makeup and fun, but a health expert. <laughs> Let's just... The famous J.I. Rodale yeah. of Rodale Press, Rodale P Prevention Magazine. Right. Irony. Uh. Uh, other health publications. <laughs> and he began to gurgle. He was in a half hour. He was in the 12 to 1230 slot. Yeah. Very funny. Very amusing. I had made a note to have him back. How's that for Already her? you'd made that note. Not yeah. knowing that moments later he would be dead of a coronary, having made a snoring sound. Did uh -huh. you guys initially laugh? You thought it was just fell asleep or something? Well, I am told, I said, are we boring you, Mr. Rodale? <laughs> I'm not sure that wasn't invented later by someone. Right, right. Well, <laughs> I took his wrist and thought, I don't know what a wrist is supposed to feel like. Some interns came up from the audience, opened his pants and shirt and applied pressure in various places and things and but he was DOA apparently. Wow. Well so how how did you generally pick your guests? Was it just what you were interested in personally or what you thought would go over with the audience or how did you balance that? Because you had such an a, eclectic group, not many people and also pairings of people. I just saw on uh, Wherever I am out here, people come up and say, we watch you every night. Right. And I think, this, am I on a time warp? Right. And then I remember <laughs> that they're seeing my shows right. on decades. Right. Not right. all of the country gets decades. Right. I don't think Nebraska gets it at all. Well, Not the first time they didn't right. get it. <laughs> but yeah, it's all the time here. I, I maybe have a bigger <laughs> And Satchel Page is on one where the loon Salvador Dali yeah. Comes on, a madman. He really carrying a great painter. Of course, we have to admit that. Yeah. Uh, not the first to say that, are we? <laughs> carrying an anteater on a leash. Dolly, the surrealist, has to come on carrying an anteater. Dumps it on the lap of an elderly lady who happens to be Lillian Gish. <laughs> and people say, "Who's the black man?" That was Satchel Page. So. Uh, what a yeah. group. I mean, but that was because you were interested in such a variety of things or or you thought this would be good stunt pairing where these people I, might... Someone on my staff must have... Uh, I let them book. I, found I couldn't make any decisions. Yeah. The best moment from that, I believe, is on YouTube. I'll, I'll spoil it now, but <laughs> Dali... May I quote Salvador Dali on your show? It's fine with me. I don't know about him. But I it's... asked him an unforgivable yeah. question, like, what's your theory of art? Can you imagine? 
And what I got back was virtually, are for the litenses press for recrudescence of butterfly. Can there ever people who sent down for a comprehension for a and I wiggled my fingers in his face and said, Boogie, Boogie. Right. <laughs> Maybe the biggest, longest laugh right. I've ever gotten in my life. A tribute to the Marx Brothers. Yes. And uh, Groucho in Night at the Opera, as you know. Yes. When the old hag comes on, somehow that jumped into Margaret my head Dumont. and he was Boogie, right, Boogie. Right. So for you, it seems like it, it, a lot of these guests were of the old golden age of Hollywood, which seems mm-hmm. to have been of great interest to you. Let's just mention for listeners to remind them, not only Groucho, but Brando and Betty Davis and Catherine Hepburn and Alfred Hitchcock and Judy Garland and Fred Astaire and Lawrence Olivier. It's unbelievable. It's like the... It's the, dazzling. And, and so I just wonder for you, were those your favorite types of guests because you... Well, pers- that, that group, you didn't have to be weird to admire them, no. <laughs> every one of them. But you were uh, a film guy yourself. You are a film buff yourself. I love yourself. films. Yeah. I love movies. And someone admonished me for saying, I heard you read that list once on a radio interview, and afterwards you said they were Redwoods. You must <laughs> know, Mr. Cavett, that we have Redwoods today. Right. <laughs> uh, in some sense, there does seem to be something a little larger than life in yeah. that group. yeah. But Meryl Streep is a redwood. Sure. I mean, to think we don't have people great now. But there was something. Well, it was Betty Davis who said, we were a little bigger than life. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be somewhat reduced now. She said 40 years ago. Right, right. Let me ask you this. If the show existed in different incarnations from, I think, 68 through 75 68. or something like that? Yeah, but I, I I think of it as five or six years on ABC, five or six years on PBS, right. four or five or six years on CNBC with the USA Network in right. there for one year, and summer on CBS and so on. So, but in those years when you were on ABC and really could have gotten and did get anyone you wanted to be on the show, and you it, it was during a very consequential time for the country as well, and a lot of things that were reflected on the show, Vietnam, Watergate, feminist movement, all of these things came up. If you could have done those years that you were on ABC at any other time, would you have still chosen to do it when you you did it? Ah, that's interesting. It's hard to imagine now, because so many dramatic things characterized the time I happened to be (laughs) fingered by fate to do it. A talk show, and, and we were just talking about film stars largely, but yeah, people from politics, people from sports, people from crime. Well, I only had one mob leader, one <laughs> Don, and I only had one murderer that I'm aware of. And, and as the minute I started on television, you should pardon the expression, assassination season began <laughs> yeah, yeah. and went on yeah. and on. Kennedy and other Kennedy yeah. and Martin and Martin yep. Luther King and Medgar Evers, Lauren Bacall on a show of mine, a live one, lamenting the just finished death of assassination of Bobby Kennedy. And she suddenly said, "Why don't they ever shoot any right wingers?" <laughs> well, <laughs> and as in obedience right. to her, right. The next assassination, I think, mm-hmm. history will show, was George Lincoln Rockwell, the head of the Nazi party. There you go. Yeah. Do you think that the fact that your style 
what got you labeled an intellectual and the fact that you listened to your guests actually and you read the books and mm-hmm. and you you know you you actually let people finish their thoughts and solicited thoughts as opposed to some of the the stunt type things that go on on other late night shows did that in the end cause the ending of the show do you feel that that affected rating i don't think you could ever be sure about that on abc they kept saying get the ratings up get the ratings up i, I did and uh, it was going well and i got the john and yoko and that gave them some wonderful <laughs> nights except that uh, they came back and they say uh, and did jo- yoko's woman is the nigger of the world song a feminist song, but ABC didn't get that and right. wanted to cancel the song. And I said, I get you the Lennons and you're going to censor them. Right, right, right. So I said, no, you're not. Let's <laughs> see what that would do. Right, <laughs> right. This went on for about four days or so. And then, okay, Dick, we'll air the show with the song, but we're going to have you say a little something beforehand. So I taped, <laughs> uh, what you're about to see might strike some of you as controversial. Right, you don't right. want to offend in order to save the song. So it played. There were maybe 400 protests. None of them about the song. All of them, as one woman put it, by that mealy-mouthed speech, (laughs) you obviously rammed down Dick's throat and forced him to spit out on the air against it. Well, I read it a a little way that might play into that. So that gave hope for America, I thought. Nobody yeah. complained about the song. No. Nobody. You'd think the network would have at least written a few fake letters. Right, right. I don't think that's when I got my favorite hate mail from Waco, Texas. Mm-hmm. It specializes in hate mail, <laughs> I learned through my career. Right. I used to see it to Johnny and Jack. Dear Dick Cabot, you little sawed-off faggot communist shrimp. There that was, was there. There was a return address. And I wrote back, I'm not sawed-off. <laughs> I don't know if they got it. <laughs> well, if I can end with three sort of big picture brief brief things, just your take on this. When you stopped with the Dick Cavett show, and before, obviously, you've you've done many great things since then, including the books and, and specials and other, I know there was the, the Nightline the show that came after Nightline and so many other things. But yeah. when you immediately left, when it was over for the show, you dropped out of the public eye quite a bit for a while. And I just wonder... Is that a jarring thing? Was that, you know, to, to be on and having to go 100 miles per hour five nights or four All or five I nights? could think of was, God, I don't have to drag <laughs> through a day reading notes and then go through a show that's either a strain or such a th- total delight. Right. I mean, they shouldn't pay you for sitting with Catherine Hepburn right, for two right, right, minutes right, right. or somewhere. Robert Mitchum, my God, I love Mitchum and others. And actually what happened was somebody at ABC decided that late night could do even better. When I left ABC, a guy said, don't ever let them try to tell you they didn't make plenty of money right. on your show. Right. But they thought they could make more, right. a familiar phrase. Yeah. So they devised something called Wide World of Entertainment, <laughs> right. and they put Jack Parr for a week, and he said, I won't do it if Cavett isn't also in there. For, so I did a week, and then on the other two weeks, they did various specials right. and things that were... Let us say the wide world of entertainment proved much more narrow than they hoped. Right, right. And it didn't last very long. But, but some of my best shows were in that period. Really? Yeah. So, secondly, Late Night Today, do you watch it? What do you make of it? It's much more stunt-based. You don't see mm-hmm. a, a, a substantive conversation of the, of the sort that you specialized in. 
I don't watch anything late at night, but since I know all the people doing those shows, yeah. I, I, I do the catch-up in the morning yeah, thing, yeah, yeah. either with the whole show. Or so. I love Stephen Colbert. I would, years ago, I went on record, not that many yeah. things. Colbert, if he uh, will drop his character for who he is, he is so smart and so intelligent and yeah. so articulate and so educated and so funny. He'd be a good late-night host. <laughs> And he's the one that would, would he remind you the most of your of yourself from those days of the people that are doing it today? In a way, he does, yeah, because yeah, we're friends and we sit and talk, and I get a kick about hearing him say what our day was back then in school was this this basketball practice, and then everybody got together and watched the cabbage yeah, show. Yeah, well, the, so finally, if and when you ever reflect back on your life like we've been doing here and you think about all the things we've been talking about the tv stuff the writing stuff the you've done broadway you've done all sorts of things yeah. as well as the important work you've done destigmatizing depression and things like that what are you what are you though proudest of just you know looking back on it I, I, I try not to think in those terms because yeah. i'm sure as the great comic Jackie Leonard used to say, one of these days you're going to find yourself and you'll be disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really don't think much that way, but I do love it when people come up and say how much the show meant to them and certain shows meant to them. And it happens here at the TCM Festival every 20 minutes right. when I'm out in the street. Proudest of, I think you, you briefly referred, not alluded politicians, <laughs> you referred to... Depression and the fact that my coming out about it and not being frightened off by the stigma that everybody said, for whatever reasons, because I, maybe I sensed that Mike talking about it on Larry King and in People Magazine, at one point I was in danger of becoming the poster boy for depression, but it's a horrible, ghastly ailment that leads to suicide. Someone will come up on the street and say, you saved my dad's life. He saw you talk about it. And he thought, if Cavett can get through this and have this, then maybe I don't need to be ashamed. Maybe I'll get out of 24 hours in bed and turn myself in. Or you saved our daughter, someone told me quite dramatically. There was even a daughter whom I called once. Wow. I got this grateful thing. from. The, but dreadful disease, worst agony devised for man. Someone said, if you haven't had it, you can't imagine, no matter how bored, blue, uh, sad you've been. I even turned on an analyst in his office who said, uh, I said, I wish you could experience this, all, you and your colleagues, for a minute, because you can't imagine what it feels like. And he said, oh, my dad died, and I was pretty bad. And I said, you think grief is even close to this? And he said, I shouldn't have said that. Mm. Wow. Well, well, thank you for all of So I should go the... off now. We should sing, when you're smiling, <laughs> the whole world smiles with you. Well, thank anyway, you. Anyway, you thank... do a hell of a job. Hey, thank See, you. I didn't want to say heck of a job because that was Bush to Brownie, remember? <laughs> no, it's a really, it's a privilege because I end up having to do a, a lot of interviews and I learned so much from, even though you had, conver I try to have a conversation. Instead yeah, that's of right, interview, conversation, so. that's the key word. Thank you very much. Thank you.